Good morning, and happy first Sunday of Advent. It's a joy to welcome you here on this foggy December morning and to welcome the 40 or so men back from the men's retreat who drove back in the rain and in the fog. Welcome back, men. <laughs> you get applause for that. We should be applauding your wives and, uh, and the moms who uh, single parented this weekend. So welcome. And uh, today and next Sunday and the Sunday after that, we will be spending three weeks of Advent in the book of Isaiah. Believe it or not, Christmas Eve is close upon us on Sunday, December 24th. And so for the three Sundays before then, we'll turn our attention to the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived more than 700 years before the birth of Christ. He was commissioned by God as a prophet. And this means that he received and proclaimed the word of God, and he received and proclaimed the vision from God with all of the authority of God. Isaiah, the prophet, would function in this role for what could have been up to 50 years through the reign of many different kings and over the course of some very very difficult and tragic history in his nation. This book is a heavy book, 66 chapters long. And this book is unmatched in all of scripture in its richness, its depth, and how often, other than the Psalms of an Old Testament book, it's quoted in the New Testament, even quoted by Jesus himself, often, and it's, and it's prophetic pointing forward to the Messiah. You can't go far in this book, even in the difficult, dark sections of this book, without finding that glimmer of the light of Christ. We'll notice this, especially in the first 39 chapters, which is that Isaiah has some bad news. It's bad news of judgment, of impending invasion and destruction. And this is a result of the sin of the people and their rebellion and their idolatry. But Isaiah also has good news, and we'll hear this continually through the book. Bad news, but then good news of, of redemption, of deliverance, of, of hope that's coming. So Isaiah is writing then and now to a sin-sick people who at every turn seem to choose their sin and sadly sometimes seem to prefer their sin. And Isaiah pronounces clearly God's judgment on sin. And Isaiah clearly pronounces God's salvation from sin. So Isaiah is saying, make no mistake about it, Yahweh will deal with sin. Yahweh will deal with the evil in the world. Yahweh will deal with it, and Yahweh will save his people. So what we're gonna do as a church is whenever we come to the season of Advent, take a brief look at the book of Isaiah. Just like we're preaching through the Psalms each summer, and John in the fall and winter, when we come to Advent, we will come to the book of Isaiah. And I want to take a moment here, since it's our first Sunday in Isaiah, to just talk briefly about why and how. 
So first, why Isaiah in Advent? As succinctly as I can put it, because the book of Isaiah and the season of Advent are meant to accomplish much of the same thing in the hearts of God's people, which is to tell us there's a problem. We all feel this. We feel it in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own world, our own nation. There is a problem. In our world, there's a problem, and there's a problem that can only be, we can only be delivered from by a deliverer. The problem of the heart, the problem of the world can only be solved by the deliverer who has come and who is coming. And by turning our hearts and returning our hearts to the one who comes to deliver. So Isaiah is saying, Christ is going to come, but we're gonna have to wait. So the bad news then is that we are great sinners. The good news though is that Jesus is a greater savior. And that's why we're going to look at this particular book during this particular season. It causes us to look seriously at that problem of sin, which causes us to rejoice more greatly in the grace of our Savior. That's why. Now, how? How are we going to go through Isaiah exactly? We'll go through this book in order from chapter 1 to chapter 66. I'm guessing we'll get to chapter 66 in about 10 years or so. I haven't done the math totally yet, but we're not going to go through this book, don't worry, exactly verse by verse. Some books of the Bible lend themselves to that. We're going through John like that. We've gone through Paul, some of Paul's letters like that. I lean towards uh, preaching like that. But Isaiah will approach more like from 500 feet in the air, not 30,000 feet, but more closer to the ground. We can make things out 500 feet in the air, but we'll drop down to the ground like today when key themes of the book all converge, and when those key themes converge to point us forward to Jesus. So we'll track with the flow of the book. We won't just look at the greatest hits of Isaiah. A lot of us have heard sermons, especially Christmas time, on Isaiah 9 or 11 or 40. Uh, Holy Week, we often hear from Isaiah 53. But there are 66 chapters in this book. So we will track with the flow of this book and look at the, the moments when the key themes converge and point us forward to the Messiah. My hope for me and for us is that as we go into Isaiah each Advent, we'll grow in our love for God's word and also grow in our love and our appreciation for this particular book of Isaiah. Sometimes we might be intimidated by this book or confused by long sections of it. What does this have to do with me? How am I supposed to read this now in the new covenant? So I hope this helps give us some context there. So I invite us as a church to observe a meaningful advent and to observe a holy and an expectant advent. And to help us do that, I invite us into the book of Isaiah and to hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. Open your Bibles there, if you haven't already, to the book of Isaiah. I don't know exactly what 
page number it's on, but if you find the book of Psalms in the middle, turn four books to the right. Thank you. You'll find yourself in Isaiah. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 1, very briefly, verse 1. The author is introduced to us here. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah was a real person who lived during a real period of world history under real kings. Some good kings, some not so good kings. And what Isaiah spoke to God's people and to the world over 700 years ago, before the birth of Christ, is still relevant to us today. And I say this because of the first four words of the book, the vision of Isaiah. This does not mean that Isaiah originated this vision. It means he received this vision. A lot of people on earth, a lot of people in world history, even now, have visions. Isaiah's vision wasn't his. The words Isaiah says here in this book are not his, they are God's. And so because this is the word of the Lord and the vision from the Lord, we ought to pay attention. Now, as we look at just the first 20 verses today, but most closely at one through six and then 16 through 20, God speaks clearly to us. And the first thing he speaks clearly about is the condition of mankind. Right out of the gate here, not wasting any time, this book begins with God speaking to us through Isaiah about our condition, the condition of mankind. And he does this by, in a sense, putting all of mankind on trial. In these opening verses, every man, every woman, every nation are on trial. And now the charges against all of us are presented and our condition is laid bare. So verse 2 begins could say by inviting cameras into the courtroom. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now that ought to make the hairs on the back of our neck stand up. I don't know whether your mother ever called you by your first and middle name. You knew she meant business. God means business here. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. And then he speaks as a father. He speaks tenderly, a heart of love. Hear the broken heart of Father God. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So Isaiah, very quickly here, unmasks the unvarnished truth about our sinful natures, saying we actually act in ways 
no offense or anything, that are inferior to an ox or a donkey. Huh. Apart from God's grace, we rebel against God and, to make matters worse, in a sense, divorce him. Where it says here in verse 3, but Israel does not know, that, those words there for does not know are actually the same words used for divorce. So God has covenanted himself to us. And we've willingly, intentionally walked away. One commentator that I'm reading as I study Isaiah named John Oswald wrote this. I found that helpful. An ox or a donkey is intelligent enough to know to whom it belongs and upon whom it can depend. But God's children are not so. Thus, the stars and the earth following obediently in their courses are called to see the spectacle of thinking, feeling human beings living in ways which are contrary to their own natures. As I was reading this, I heard my old uncle Larry, he's still alive, lives in Kentucky, he's full of southern expressions. I heard him saying, dumber than a bucket of rocks. <laughs> An ox or a donkey knows its own master's crib, but not Israel. They've divorced me. So Isaiah puts his finger right on the heart of the problem, which is a problem of the heart, which was true then, 750 BC, and which is true now in 2023, which is that we're sinners bent towards rebellion. We're bent away from the Father. This hurts to hear. It's not pleasant to hear this, but we have to hear it if we want to know why the gospel is good news. We have to hear it if we want to know why joy to the world is in a major key. We need to know the grievousness of sin, the grievousness of our condition apart from God's grace. So verse four, the prophet of God continues, ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Merry Christmas. <laughs> the doctor here is saying that the bone of mankind is totally broken. It's not a sprain. It's a fracture. The insurance adjuster is saying that the car of mankind is totaled. It's not just a scratch. The whole frame is bent. The new general manager of the Washington commanders of mankind is saying the season can't be salvaged. The condition is not just dire. The condition of mankind is utterly sinful. And it's so bad, we cannot save ourselves. Verses five and six. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel or prone to wander? The whole head is sick. 
The whole heart is faint. As I was reading this, I was thinking about that song I learned as a kid that my little boy still sings, head, shoulders, knees, and toes. From head to toe, we are sick. From the sole of the foot, verse four, even to the head, there is no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So the first day of the trial is over. The prosecution has finished with its opening presentment of charges and the headline reads in all caps, bold text, mankind has sinned itself to death. This past week I went into the grocery store one night to get a few things and there I was walking through Amazon Fresh, this new grocery store. You ever been there with the millions of little cameras that track every move you make and every product you take off the shelves? Totally not creepy at all. Um, <laughs> walking through Amazon Fresh and there I am going down the aisle. There's the employees and the customers and on the speakers comes, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Where, happy clappy Christmas song, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Let's say it again. Far as, far as the curse is found. Let me ask you, Mr. Amazon, fresh employee, stocking the 2% milk on the shelf, how far exactly is the curse found? Isaiah tells us, God tells us, the curse is universally found. So what we notice now, which we'll notice often in this book, is that the prophet who's just been pointing his finger at mankind, exposing the unvarnished, ugly condition of mankind, now extends his other hand and offers it to the guilty. And in this outstretched hand is the message of salvation. And this is the heart of God. We've seen the condition of mankind. Now we see the heart of God. Even in Isaiah chapter one, we hear the melody of the gospel. We'll fly over verses seven through 15. We'll come down back to the ground on verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Now let's notice two things when we see sections like this in scripture and hold these things in, in healthy tension. That first, this is what God's holiness requires. But what Isaiah helps us also to see is that what God's holiness makes necessary, God's grace makes possible. Don't read verses like this, especially when we go back to the Old Testament and read them in a vacuum or read them only to think this is what God requires out of his people. Because that would be to forget what we've just heard. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes. 
God doesn't speak to dead sinners and say, I require life out of you. God looks at sinners in grace and says, I also desire life for you. He's not saying here only, I require cleanliness out of you, verse 16. What we're seeing here is a revelation of the heart of God where he says, I desire this for you. I'm going to make this possible for you. Or in verse 17, he's not just saying, I require goodness and justice out of you, dead sinners, you rebels. I require you to correct oppression, bring justice, and plead the widow's cause. He's revealing his desire that he will accomplish in us by grace. A bent people cannot unbend themselves. Your dead iPhone cannot charge itself. It needs to be plugged into a source outside of itself. Infected people can't heal themselves. And, and Isaiah also is saying here that an ignorant people who have forgotten the widow and the poor and the oppressed can't teach themselves. So this is what the holiness of God makes necessary, but what the holiness of God requires. See this even here in Isaiah. The heart of God desires and the grace of God makes possible. See his grace here. Isaiah is saying to the people of God, then and now, God is gonna make a way to save you. You cannot save yourself. God is gonna save you. So here, again, the heart of God, here the melody of the gospel, how Isaiah points more than 700 years into the future to the cross. Verse 18, come now. There's grace. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Notice that word, shall. Though they are red like crimson, they what? Shall become like wool. Not might. Shall. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is Isaiah talking, but this is God talking. The mouth of the Lord has spoken, and the Lord speaks decisively and in finished, settled terms. Settled terms. We see this here of salvation and judgment. What grace. Just allow your heart to receive this in verse 18. This grace that God would say to sinners. Let us reason together. That God would say to sinners, your sin will be washed away. And this grace is secured for us in an event. And it's secured for us and accessed by trusting in that event. Verse 19 makes this clear. This definitive salvation is found 
if you are obedient, if you trust. If you're like me, you're hearing some echoes of John 3, where we've been as a church for a few weeks before today. These same themes of salvation in Christ and judgment apart from Christ. So picture with me that the cross is here and the people to whom Isaiah is writing are here, 750 BC. We are here, 2023 AD. Isaiah is saying that for them, the cross reaches backwards in time. It reaches backwards in time. And for us, the cross reaches forward in time. God was calling his people then to put their faith in a certain salvation that would be secured for them in the future. And God is calling us now to put our faith in a certain salvation that was secured for us in the past. So if you're hearing these words and it's the year 750 BC, you're being assured of a salvation and a deliverance that will happen for you. If you're hearing these words and it's the year 2023, you're being assured of a deliverance and a salvation that has happened for you. So here in these first 20 verses, the condition of mankind meets the heart of God, and the heart of God is not to destroy his people, but that his people would turn to him, return to him, trust in his deliverance. We are not basically good people who need to get better. We are basically sinful people who need to be saved. What that means also is that none of us are any better than anyone else and none of us are any worse than anyone else. All of us have been given the same bad news from the doctor of the fatal disease of sin and the remedy for that fatal disease of sin for all of us is found in the same Savior. So Isaiah begins with a bang, and he won't let up for 39 chapters. He says, we're sick from head to toe. We're great sinners. But in the words of, it was John Newton who said this. He was a pro slavery Englishman who God ended up converting and changing into a slavery abolishing minister. John Newton said in his deathbed, I am a great sinner. Jesus is a great savior. So that's why we need to hear the message of this book during Advent, that we would hear and repent of the bad news and that we would hear and rejoice in the good news. And that good news, I think, may be best summarized for us in the name of the prophet himself. 
Isaiah, meaning Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. And Yahweh would come to his people. He would come down on a dark night in Bethlehem into a stable, into a manger. And on that holy night, the donkey and the ox would know their master's crib. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So Father, we thank you for your word that speaks a hard word to us, but rings out with an even better word, the good news of our Savior who has come and who will come again. Lord, fix our eyes on our finished salvation and set our hearts with hope on our soon coming King. We ask in his name. Amen.